0: Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode nine. One does not simply glowing Gary Gloin Ross. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get right to it.
1: episode, we're going to be discussing book two of Fellowship of the Ring. So we're starting with chapter one, Many Meetings, in which after his run-in with the Black Riders, Frodo awakes in the house of Elrond. We get to meet several more elves, including Elrond himself, as well as his daughter Arwen, and we get to reunite with several familiar faces, including Gandalf and Bilbo. This chapter is not necessarily super plot heavy, but we do get a lot of moments of relationships as Frodo reconnects with his old friends and gets to meet some of these new faces. Um, We also get to reconnect with a face that is familiar to us in the form of one of the dwarves from Thorin's company. And so all of these characters come together, they celebrate with a feast and some conversation, and as the chapter closes, we await the meeting of the Council of Elrond coming up soon in which they're going to decide what to do about the ring.
0: It's hard to describe, but like the whole chapter feels like um, those like one take movies or like one shot movies where it's just like the the camera is just like drifting You're like drifting over Frodo's shoulder as he like walks out into the gardens of Rivendell and then into the feast and then into the hall of fire. It's very... This um... is because
1: we watched Russian Ark in high school, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But you're, you're totally right. Further proof that Tolkien does not need to like literally tell us about the surroundings. Like he is capable of doing show, don't tell.
1: Well, and maybe that's what we should start by talking about, because I think all of us had a pretty positive reaction to this chapter. And Wanda, who apparently read ahead and knew it was coming, very valiantly refrained from saying, I told you so last episode when Navi and I were complaining about how we wanted more dialogue and more character moments.
2: Wait, can I just like as a brief tangent for a second like this just reminds me of this like extremely traumatizing experience that I had once which has prevented me from ever reading ahead in anything ever again because like I was I think it was in some class in middle school or high school and we were reading a book and I had a habit of just reading really fast and reading ahead and I think I like spoiled a pretty major plot point for the class in one of my classes and I was just absolutely roasted for it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do you remember what book it was and i i, bet I, I was, was just was like to defending kill a myself bird. probably i i don't know i was just de- desperately defending myself being like it's just the next chapter i swear it's not even that big of a spoiler
1: <laughs> and anyway. that's why we won more won, why we won, <laughs> why we won <laughs> that's how you pers- pronounce
0: loin. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs>
1: yeah dear listeners please when this episode is released way in So in this chapter, we do re-encounter a character from The Hobbit. And this character's name is commonly pronounced Gloin, which doesn't seem to fit with the way it's written, which is with an accent over the O. So I would like to propose... Oh, my God. (laughs) I just can't talk today. I would like to do I think propose. the influence
2: of how to pronounce Gloin is just making it into every sentence. <laughs> <laughs>
1: just trying to say Gloin every other word. Propoing. No, I want
0: to pronounce it. You're as experiencing gloin. Gloin's curse. Right? He <laughs> pronounces his name because a different way. To... You can only say the
1: word Gloin for the rest of your life.
0: It's <laughs> oh already taking no.
1: over.
2: <laughs> Guys, I'm the worst Pokemon. So. A slight um argument in favor of Gloin not being the correct pronunciation is that Gloin has a brother whose name is just O I N, and I think that's usually pronounced Owen. So I would think oh. this would be Gloin. Yeah, I, I, I like that it. as an argument. Yeah, uh, it's definitely not what happens in the Hobbit movies. They definitely say Gloin in the Hobbit movies. Yeah. and I definitely like reading this. I've always pronounced it in my head as Gloin because Gimli, son of Gloin, just like rolls off the tongue for me. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, I would think that Owen and Gloin would go together. Yes.
1: And I will say, given the tendency in fantasy movies for them to be like, dwarves have Scottish accents, like you might as well lean into that and just be like, it's Gloin. <laughs> you know? And I'm sorry, anybody who's listening from Scotland or honestly the UK as a whole, I I, but genuinely, there's an accent over the O.
2: <laughs> there's also the name like E O I N, mm-hmm. right? That's a thing. And <laughs> in my mind, I'm always just like E O I N, <laughs> but it's definitely Owen. <laughs> Old McDonald had a farm. E O I N. Sorry.
1: Oh, it's been a day. I guess we're getting a little silly here. We are, Uh, we are
0: getting a little silly. Do you guys think that, do you guys think, uh, given that we know that the races and the civilizations share a common tongue, um, but then all also have their own dialects. Um, Mm -hmm. can we, can we maybe assume that their names also share some similarity with like a little bit of difference? So like, um, you can be an elf and you can be named Arwen, and you can be a dwarf and you can be named Glowen, which are like fairly similar names, um, but they're spelled really differently.
2: Do you mean how kind of like how there are like different versions of, of biblical names? Exactly. In different yes. languages? Yeah,
0: something like that. Like maybe maybe Glowen is actually like to the extent that like Dwarvish and Elvish uh, seem like they're sort of related languages. Um glow to make sense because it sounds sort of like uh it sounds like a name that could also in like a parallel universe belong to an elf but it's spelled differently right
2: yeah i like that theory um i don't know that it actually maps out with the names that we know about because they're all pretty different right like what is what does pippin become in like orc tongue <laughs> yeah
1: I mean, in the sense, though, that they're all sort of building from the same phonetic building blocks, right? Like, at no point do we encounter any names, as far as I know, that are really pulling from sounds that we wouldn't have in, like, Latin-derived languages.
0: Tolkien does a lot of his world-building around linguistics is something I notice, um... And I think that's what he has his background in, right so it makes sense that he does, but it it sort of seems like he that's like a that's a um a sort of trademark characteristic of the kind of world building that Tolkien does is that it is very centered around um around linguistics and around people and people's names sharing a common sound and phonetics,
2: yeah, and I think that like the fact that his story is so rooted in something that is, is very real in terms of how it shapes our world, um, makes his world like really consistent as far as fantasy worlds go.
0: Wait, I want to, I, I just, that's so, that's so deep. And I just want to like stay on <laughs> that for a second. Um, what you just said, just because like, yeah, it's, he, it's sort of like a, it's a meta thing, if you know what I'm saying. Um, that, um, that Tolkien is doing world building by basically saying like here is l- l- like a type of knowledge or like a way of knowing um, that-, that structures our reality. That's linguistics, right? So like therefore what I'm going to do to make this thing seem like a world is I'm going to give it a language. But you could just as easily do that with like other things, right? You could just as easily um, like build a world around like a science, right?
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of, almost like, I want to say most fantasy series that I read do kind of pick that thing that is central to their world. And a lot of times it ends up being religion. Um but I am reading an interesting series right now that kind of has what you were talking about where it's, it's rooted more in science and like the science of this world is a little bit different and that's what makes it a fantasy. It's interesting. I watched a video essay on the
1: difference between hard and soft world building this week and Tolkien was given as an example of hard world building wherein all of the details are provided to you and you get this sort of really concrete sense of how the world works. But I don't even know that I fully agree with that, because I think what Tolkien did, and I think what a lot of authors end up doing, is they pick a couple of things where they're like, this is concrete, and I know this about my world. And I think Tolkien probably picked more than most authors want to tackle. And at the same time, there are moments, and there have been moments over the course of the book, where stuff happens, and it's not fully explained, and it might not ever really be fully explained. We don't even always get a sense of like how the ring works, because this is the chapter where we get um, essentially what we have all affectionately, or not so affectionately termed, scary Bilbo. <laughs> right? Where Frodo oh, God. Um, is talking with Bilbo, and Bilbo asks to see the ring again, and Frodo pulls it out um, from his shirt where it's hanging on a chain, and then sees Bilbo as though he is this sort of horrible withered grasping monster and it's not really clear in the book if it's like the ring affecting Frodo or if it's the ring affecting Bilbo or if it's the ring affecting both of them and it's never going to we like I know it's not going to be explained right it's just this weird thing that happens and we're kind of expected to accept it
2: yeah I mean rules aside for a second let's talk about this scene because this is the stuff of nightmares in the movie, you guys. <laughs> like, this, this moment in time where Bilbo's face changes in the movie is, I think, one of the best jump scares I've ever seen in anything. Yeah. And I don't even like jump scares and, oh man, it gets me every single time. It's because it really comes out of nowhere,
1: right? Like, there's no sort of build up to, like, oh, this is a creepy or ominous setting. It's like, no, they're in this lovely house, and there's, like, soft
2: sunlight, and then all of a sudden you're just like, oh, God. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Ian Holm makes this, like, great sound in this scene, too, where he's just like, ah!
1: (laughs) God, I mean, I I just scrolled forward, so Wanda has very kindly put the clip in our Discord chat, and I just scrolled forward with my mouse and literally even just seeing the face in like tiny YouTube still
2: is horrifying. Oh yeah. I just did the same thing. I just scrolled in the, Oh no, it's it's so so
0: bad. It's funny that the title of this clip is Bilbo has gone mad just because I think that like really captures how poorly you can translate the complexity of what's going on in the scene, in the book into a movie, right? Because there's, um, you know, like what you just brought up, Ashani—the fact that the fact that you don't really know um, whether what's transpiring is a, a literal change in Bilbo's face or a, a, a change in Frodo's perception of Bilbo because he's thinking about Bilbo maybe taking the ring potentially from him um, or something between the two—and the ring is like mediating what is supposed to be like a, a bizarre. Um moment for the reader, in considering like the space that transpires between two people um but that is left unexplained in the book, and in the movie, it's Bilbo has gone mad
2: yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting because in general, this chapter is actually really well translated into the movie in in my opinion, and also Ian McKellen quick shout out is just the absolute Gandalf because. I literally reading his dialogue in this book can only hear it in his voice in my head, because that's how quintessentially he is this character to me.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I think with a less skilled actor, some of the frustration I have with book Gandalf in terms of his decisions to protect Frodo or like whatever guilt he feels that makes him kind of try and shelter Frodo from knowledge it's really hard to stay annoyed at Ian McKellen's Gandalf
2: because he's just so charming and so good. There's also this point where Gandalf is being described like next to um Glorfindel where he's they're describing like his uh his dark um eyes underneath his like bushy eyebrows and like they have this fire in them and even that like Ian McKellen even has that in his eyes, you know. Yeah. He's also standing next to Elrond, who...
1: (laughs) Okay, yeah, we should talk about that, because that description, right, of, like, Glorfindel, he who shall never show up again as, like, this beautiful young elf lord. Like, they wax poetic about him for a paragraph, and then we get to Gandalf, and they wax poetic about him for a paragraph. Then we get to Elrond, and in his paragraph, in which he is beautifully described, it's like, oh, he's ageless, and he's noble, and... Sort of venerable and regal, and all of these things. Hugo weaving. Discuss.
2: Okay. So, preteen me watching these movies was so severely disappointed when Elrond appeared on screen because I was led to believe that elves are hot. But just reading this description, I realized that it's not really about him being attractive so much as him having this kind of, like, agelessness and wisdom and being somewhere between joy and seriousness that actually I think Hugo Weaving brings to life pretty darn well.
0: Yeah, I think once you get to the point where, like, the elves are... If you're, like, trying to translate this book onto the screen and you make all the elves hot, I think you've kind of missed the point of what the elves are, right? And, like, the kind of beauty that they have.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, definitely that sense of, like... Agelessness or otherworldliness doesn't necessarily have to be equated with our sort of sensibilities about whether or not someone is attractive. And so, dear listeners, I'm going to I'm just going to give some context for this. Right. We had to record a little section of this because of an audio issue. And so the first time around, I proposed Keanu Reeves. As an alternative, Elrond. Which but is then such we had a, to take a, good, a break.
2: Such a good suggestion. Yeah, right. Still. And
1: first off, love it. Still stand by it. Where's that director's cut? Um, but the two equally awful thoughts I have had since then are Nick Cage. Oh no. Oh <laughs> and no. Matthew McConaughey. No! <laughs> 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 and I speak them out into the universe for your suffering. Did you, I, I like that you,
0: no, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, we, if we don't talk about this now, we're going to lose it. Because Ashani, Ashani just said director's cut. And now I'm just thinking about <laughs> a director's cut of Lord of the Rings where everything else is the same. <laughs> except that Elrond is played by Keanu Reeves. <laughs> And Keanu Reeves, like, delivering, like, the, like, a uh, delivering Narsil to Aragorn in the tent.
2: <laughs> see, Keanu Reeves, I feel like, actually, I can see that. What I can't see is just, like, Matthew McConaughey showing up and be like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> like he... All right, all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, he isn't, like, too detective. It would be, detective. like, one of those stupid Lincoln car commercials. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what? Oh, <my. laughs> <laughs> Matthew McConaughey d- delivering the shards of Narsil and then following backwards into a pool.
0: <laughs> he just like he's got like the suit on from the Lincoln the Cart commercials, oh, God. Uh, but he's wearing like he's wearing the circlet on his head.
2: Now I'm sorry, and now I have to imagine the the other version of this in which Nick, like National Treasure style, <laughs> Nick Cage is playing Elrond. <laughs> <laughs> guys, guys,
1: I'm gonna steal the ring of power. <laughs> 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 oh, it's really good. I think Hugo Weaving
0: did right by this character.
2: I agree. I think it is a solid solid casting choice in retrospect.
0: I'm going to be thinking about that director's cut thing for a while though.
1: <laughs> it's the only yeah. difference. The only difference. I I would watch that movie. I would pay money for that movie. Um No, but I do think I kind of want to actually circle back around to this whole like in the books there's all this nuance and in the movies it's just Bilbo has gone mad Um, because something else in talking about like the elves and standards of beauty is we get to meet Arwen in this chapter and Arwen is described as just this stunningly beautiful elf and we get some indicators that there's a little something, something going on between Aragorn and Arwen, which is, as Wanda has pointed out in her notes, very different from how that happens in the movies. Well, I mean, in the, in the book, it's just, uh, in the book, Frodo
0: just looks over as he's leaving the party and he sees that Arwen and Aragorn are standing next to each other. Um, which is maybe, like, the only sign you had to have that somebody was hot for somebody else uh, in whenever it well, was. there that... was the
1: other thing where Bilbo's like, why weren't you at the feast? He's talking to your yes. <laughs> right, specifically, and, and he's like, why weren't you at the feast? The Lady Arwen was there. Right. Which, if I hadn't been exposed to this story at all, if I was totally fresh to Lord of the Rings, I don't know that I would have
2: picked up on that. It's fairly subtle at this point that are like... Aragorn has told us the story of Luthien previously, and then now we get Arwen being compared to her. But if you know about the story and what it is, and the fact that Aragorn and Arwen are together at this point, it's like so heavy-handed of of Tolkien. He's just like, get it? Get it, guys? Luthien fell in love with the man too, and now Arwen's going to do the same thing. She's the second coming. Do you get it? It's
0: interesting how like in the movies, they reproduce the element of their love story that is... um it's very like mythical, right? There's, there's, I mean, there's virtually no, uh, like character development between Aragorn and Arwen that's ever explored. Um, you get very, like, you don't, you don't really like learn about their relationship at all. Like e- even like, even considering that we're like dropped into it in the middle, we don't get, they, it's like, they don't even have a dynamic like them, them like being in love is the chief quality of their relationship. And they don't, it's never, it's never explored like what they like about each other.
1: Mm-hmm. You don't get any sense of why they like each other. Right. And it, it reproduces the the
0: quality that, that their relationship has in the book where it's um, Tolkien is not really going into um, the particulars of their of their interpersonal dynamic or their chemistry. Their relationship sort of seems to serve as a, just like a it's not even a plot device. It's just like a... Um... Ah, what am I trying to say? It's... Uh, you guys, you have to have me out here, you guys. It's not like the, there's... <laughs> you just made there's... the
2: scary Bilbo sound. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, to me, it kind of seemed like it was less about plot and more about, like, creating a parallel yes for the yeah. sake of being
2: able to do other things later on yeah i mean given what we know about tolkien like and his writing style and world building thus far like do we really think he's gonna write romance here for us like i don't see that happening well well we're gonna talk about that in a minute oh yeah are you talking about the salmon, <laughs> about Frodo sa- salmon Frodo. <laughs> that's
0: tacky uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like uh, there's like a limit to how tasteful you can be while like making jokes about like how Sam and Frodo were gay because they're not gay.
2: They're not. Right? This is this they're is two, a bromance. This
0: is they're a two bromance. men who. Yeah, they they have a lot of affection for each other and it's expressed in a way that I think we're like people of our generation we're not really familiar with.
2: I agree, but I also think that there are aspects of like this relationship that they have in which like they the gay parts of it are like okay and like men don't have that kind of thing anymore you know
1: yeah i mean the joke for me is not oh ha ha you could read it as they're gay the joke for me is right i find it kind of funny that for all we're sort of sitting here going oh tolkien can't write romance tolkien actually does a really compelling job of writing about
2: love the love of 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 other kinds, yeah. But I
1: don't even know that I would say it's just, like, yes, I know he, he didn't intend for it to be read as a queer relationship. And at the same time, like, genuinely, I read that and I go, is that not what queer relationships have looked like at times, right? And it, mm. I don't think it's fair to say, oh, just because Sam marries Rosie Cotton and has kids that it is necessarily I mean it can be right and I don't want to take away from the fact that there should be opportunities for like really sincere and genuine affection between men that is entirely platonic in nature because I think that's also really important and at the same time you can also have relationships that are like deeply meaningful and romantic that maybe never crossed the line into like oh we're sleeping together but that are genuinely like these people love each other and it goes beyond just being friends.
2: Also I think like there's something to be said for, you know, some of these fictional relationships whether they were intended to be written that way or not becoming kind of iconic relationships for for some of these things, right? It's kind of one of those things where, like, I'm sure a lot of people took a lot of comfort in this relationship being so normalized here.
0: Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I think, like, that's, like, it it seems like to the extent that, like, gay wasn't really a thing that you probably said out loud very much in Tolkien's time. Or, I mean, it's not that there weren't gay people and that wasn't, like, a thing that was acknowledged by society. But it was acknowledged very differently and it had a different... um, it occupied like a very different space in people's minds. Right. Um, and to that extent, I'm sure that there are like, there were, um, it's, it's not even like, it's not even that Sam and Frodo are not gay, I suppose. And I wish I, I sort of retract saying that it's, it's, it's more like, um, it's more like they, they are, but it doesn't mean what it means now.
2: Yeah. And I think it's important also to not consider that, aspect of their relationship like a punchline in any way because it's not right it's a right. beautiful relationship that they have
1: yeah right
0: right as opposed to like what it was how it was treated and i think this was what i was really objecting to is like how it was treated as a punchline including in the easter eggs in on, on the lord of the rings dvds
2: yeah there's um some when the movies came out moments in those <laughs> there are a lot of really funny moments still like i i still love don monaghan pretending to be a german interviewer and putting on a ridiculous accent for it but
0: Somebody pretending to be German is never not going to be funny.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there are definitely some moments where it was just like, why, why were we okay with the punchline of this being that Sam loves Frodo? Right.
1: When in fact, that's one of the things that I think both the movies and the books do really well is when they show
2: affection. They show it with a lot of sincerity. Sean Astin, brilliant casting choice for Sam here because, man, he delivers on that.
1: I'm even thinking of, like, spoilers, but Boromir's death? That my brother, (laughs) my captain, my king
2: moment? Okay, going back to the beginning of this episode, though, this is no longer a spoiler. (laughs) Come on.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) If you don't know that Boromir dies by this point, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I mean, that's why we put the spoiler warning in front. Um, But anyways, right? The whole thing about that speech is it's just really sincere. Like, it's really, there's never a moment where that sort of genuine, like, affection and loyalty and care and love is played off as a joke in the actual canon. And I really appreciate that.
2: Right. They don't do it in the movies at all. Yeah. I mean, you you have to think that like Peter Jackson really respected these relationships in the book and he brought them to screen very well. And the actors did the same thing. And then I think in the desire to create funny content, you know, someone who knows who what group of people were involved with this, but there was kind of this desire to turn it into something funny. And we... I th- I think we would like to forget that at this period of time, gay jokes were a big part of our culture, but they were, it's true. And yeah. let's, let's be glad that that's in the past. Yep. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> Mic drop. Moment of silence. Um,
0: <laughs> I guess I'm just like, I'm thinking now about that and like, and having those like, could, could we have known any better? Feelings, you know, which is different because we were ten years old. But
2: yeah, and and it was one of those things where like it was so prevalent in both our like juvenile humor and also the humor of like the adults around us at the time that like how could we have known better?
0: Yeah, I think it's actually like more embarrassing that that we collectively decided to like turn like affection between men into a punchline than. Like I, I think that like I think that the 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 gay jokes that people laughed at um, when we were growing up weren't really actually about making fun of people for being gay. And I'm not gay, so I can't maybe I can't say that. But like I, being on the you know, um, having been among people that made those jokes, I feel like they were less about making fun of people for being gay and much more about making fun of people for being affectionate. Right?
2: Yeah, I do think it's funny that like you know, the three of us and a lot of our friends were participating in this humor. And, like, down the line, we ended up friends with a pretty huge amount of gay people for a a small friend group. And, like... Yeah, our whole friend group was gay. Yeah. And just, like, it's interesting that those two things didn't seem to create any kind of major clash in our minds. Like, we were okay with separating... I mean, I I think we were very aware of, like, not using gay as an insult. Like, we we knew that that was bad. But the kind of, like, teasing affection between men, like, somehow was separate from the actual idea of being gay to us. Yeah. Which was interesting, too, because actually, like, uh, when we say a large percentage of
1: our friend group was gay, sort of queer umbrella more broadly, right? Like, yeah, yeah, but there was definitely still, I think there were probably moments where for all of us, like, looking back, you do kind of go, oh, okay, I didn't know as much then as I know now. And honestly, like, none of us are sitting here going, oh, yes, and we're perfect. And we never say anything inappropriate. Or like, I have never uh, since the age of 18, I've never said anything hurtful to anybody. It's like, no, obviously not, right? Like, Everybody is always learning and everybody's always going to make mistakes and I'd like to think now we're probably more open to feedback and trying to do better than we were
2: at like 13 and 14. Definitely. But but also like we're going to continue to make mistakes, right? Like this is how our culture grows and becomes better over time is that we look back on things and we're like, "Wow, that was a really stupid moment in our in our history. Let's not do that again." Hopefully that's the way you look at these things. If you don't Please stop listening now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, you I think can keep listening. You're just not going to enjoy yeah. some of the or, things or keep say. listening and you should just listen and be challenged. Yeah. Yeah. Challenge <laughs> your worldview. I don't know. But I think also it's important to give that same consideration, like to everybody who looks back on this and we can't say, oh, I hate everybody that made these Easter eggs because they were also participating in a moment of culture that was deemed acceptable at the time. And maybe they also regret it at this point.
1: Sure. I mean, there have definitely been things that I've said already in our like eight episodes of podcasting where I've gone, ooh, if I had the chance to go back and say that, like I would try and say it in a way that was kinder or better. And almost never do I sit there and go, I wish I'd said that in a way that was funnier. It's usually like, I wish I'd said that in a way that was less likely to potentially hurt people and I don't want I mean we have some luxury in terms of editing these but there's a part of me that also says like I I can't sit there and pretend that I don't make mistakes right right and I can't sit there and pretend like I I'm perfect because I'm not and I would you
0: rather, definitely like, can't pretend you're perfect while you're being recorded <laughs> Yeah, oh,
2: yeah right but that's okay. And I also think like that plays into that same discussion that we've kind of been having ongoing about giving that same consideration to Tolkien. And he's not here today to go back and say like, these are the things that I regret. But it's it's hard to read this and, and be like, oh, I dismissed this entire thing because he was a product of his time. Because, you know, he also may have made mistakes. Yeah. I think I shared this with you
0: guys, but there was that somebody tweeted like, uh, "Why is nobody talking about the 2,000 year age difference between uh, Arwen and Aragorn?" Oh yeah. And somebody somebody else was like, "It's funny how Tolkien's been awfully quiet since this came out." <laughs> <laughs> I wonder I wonder what he would regret if he uh, if he were alive today. Maybe he would regret the whole thing. Maybe he would regret writing the entire series.
2: Actually, bringing up Arwen again for a second, I have a quick question for you guys. Do you understand what it means to be the Even Star?
0: This is what I think. Uh, this is this is actually like I think this gets back to what Ashani was talking about about hard and soft world building. Because um, I think that like the way that I have been reading Lord of the Rings so far, it has become de facto soft world building because I'm not pursuing any of these references at
2: all. <laughs> I am doing the opposite. <laughs>
0: Well, and that's why, that's why we love you and we need you on this podcast. <laughs> um, if you weren't here, we would, I would just be an idiot. But I also feel like it's, I, I've been doing this for a reason, which is that I think that um, I, the world actually feels more real to me when I don't follow every reference down to its origin point, because that's how, so how I experience the world around me, right? Like there's always references that are coming up from history And you sort of exist in this like impressionist painting of all of the like historical references that are manifesting themselves around you from day to day. And that's... So it feels real. Middle Earth feels real to me when I could just kind of read through a paragraph like this paragraph about Arwen and not follow the references through. So basically what I'm saying is I don't know. I have no idea what the even star means. (laughs)
1: I kind of read it as not so much a formal title as, like, I don't know what the word is for these, but they pop up a lot in fantasy. Um, But, and the first reference I can think of, and I apologize for this, but it's Game of Thrones, is they call Jaime Lannister Kingslayer, right? Where it's not a title, but it is a name that is associated with that person whether because of actions or appearance or it's just like mm-hmm. essentially a very formal nickname and that was kind of my sense of what even star is right she's known for her great
2: beauty so it's i i got the same impression because she's referred to as the even star of her people so yeah kind of like you know she's she's their light yeah their guiding light She's Miss Rivendell 20 years in a row. <laughs> I do I do want to go back to what Wanda was saying for a second about how she's reading this because I I want to just offer like the counterpoint to that of I think that's a really interesting way of reading this and it's it's really I'm glad you're doing that so that I get to hear your takes on how it is doing it. Um but I'm having an experience where like I feel like there are a lot of easter eggs in here intended for people that are kind of like in the know about the lore um like for example when when Arwen is being introduced um it they mention uh that she is of Rivendell and Lorien or whatever and that's interesting because we're gonna go to Lorien later and meet Galadriel who ends up being a fairly major character and um Arwen is actually Galadriel's granddaughter, which you would never know from just these descriptions. But if you just like do a little bit of digging, you get that.
1: I don't know that I would even count them as Easter eggs, though, because sort of in between the two of you, I'm not hunting down every bit of lore, but I'm also not sort of actively not searching these things out. And so what I've mostly been doing is like if there's a footnote or if there's an indicator of more information in the appendix, I will sometimes click that. And so, like, I got more of a sense of who Arwen's mother is and who her lineage is because they say, like, her mother was of Lorien and they mention Calabria and, like, what happened to her in the appendix. But I think that's one of those things where, to me, that's not so much an Easter egg as it is, like, layers of world building right? It's not sort of Easter egg would be if it was referencing another text. Like if there was something where Tolkien is referencing something from the C.S. Lewis books, for instance, because they were buddies, um, that to me would feel like more of an Easter egg. For me, this is just like very comprehensive world building and you get to choose how much of it you care to engage with.
2: Yeah, i I don't think you mentioned, like, who or what actually happened to Calabrian, so for those interested, I'm going to just give a TLDR. Uh, basically, Arwen's mom was apparently kidnapped and tortured by orcs and ended up ha- with a poison wound that Elrond was not able to heal. So she was, like, so tortured by it that she ended up deciding not to remain in Middle-earth and sailing off to the Undying Lands. Yeah, I felt kind of weird about that, I'm not going to lie. What what made you feel weird about it?
1: I think I feel weird about it because it was this sense of why why would you choose to have this happen to a fictional character? Like, what function does this serve to be like, oh, and then she was tortured and like so horribly scarred that even if they could physically heal her, mentally she was never able to recover and so she left her family
2: part of the thing i think that makes this uncomfortable which i've noticed in a lot of like kind of mentions of characters being tortured is that when the character is a woman being tortured there's always kind of a weird underlying sexual abuse connotation to it mm-hmm. wh- which is not often like just mentioned straight up um, but it's always a little bit implied, and it is deeply uncomfortable to deal with.
0: Yeah, you're saying. Are you saying, Ashani, that like there's that it that it feels like sort of exploitative or uh, or like gratuitous to drop this character's name, and the only thing we ever know about her is that she was she was like basically like molested and tortured by orcs.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I would say like exploitative, but I think for me, it's one of those things where. Tolkien probably just saw that as like another little detail of world building
2: and history well, and I th- for this story. I think the really... reason for bringing it up specifically is that Arwen has twin brothers um, who are mentioned here and they help the rangers protect the land. And one of their like kind of motivations for doing that is specifically to avenge their mother, which I think is why this is brought up.
1: But you could easily, like, you could cut that whole thing. Yes, right. you could. None of that matters. You could edit this. In the grand scheme of things. And on top of that, it's sort of like, it's less about what Tolkien intended and more about all of the things he probably didn't intend, right? The the thing that makes me, I don't even know, like, uncomfortable, but just kind of it grates a little bit is the really casual inclusion of these kinds of things where it's like that's just sort of a a little tidbit or a little like passing detail that probably didn't cause any thought. Mm. I'm not sitting here going, oh, it's Tolkien's fault. Right. But I think, again, looking at something like Game of Thrones, why is it that the only way to do like gritty, realistic fantasy is to be like violence against women is what makes this realistic and not the fact that everybody has terrible teeth? <laughs>
2: Yeah. You know? And I, I think like I I have like I said, I've seen this type of mention of torture happen a lot in stories of just like it's almost like the author feels uncomfortable enough with what they're implying to not go further into it.
1: Yeah. But also somehow not uncomfortable enough to not include it. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. It's the aspect of Tolkien sort of like myth making here. Um like what, what makes it uncomfortable is that there are, um, that there are certain sort of like tropes of human behavior that, um, that he considers to be like, like basic atomic units of, of like human relationships enough to like stick them into this, like into this book in a passing way. And one of them is like the torture of women. Yeah. I think that's a a good way of putting it. Right, that it's just like a thing that happens to women.
2: It, it, it's interesting that you, you put it that way because this is, I I think, that really the only mention of any kind of violence against women in these books. Mm, I don't know that that's true. Because
1: I'm pretty sure when we get to the bits with Eowyn and...
2: Oh, with Wormtongue. Worm yeah. Okay, I lied. Um, that's definitely weird. <laughs> yeah. But that's explored a little bit deeper, I think. Like, we get more of an understanding of what's going on there.
1: Right. Well, but I wouldn't even, like, I want to keep an eye out for it because I don't think I would have remembered before I got to this section anything about what happens to Arwen's mom. Like, if you had asked me before we started this reread, can you tell me who Arwen's mom is and what happens to her? I would be like, oh. Mm-hmm presumably she's not in the picture anymore and that's about all i know so i don't know that there aren't going to be other instances that we just aren't remembering
2: yeah I, i'm kind of with you we, we we should just keep an eye on it because we've also as we mentioned in the previous episode there aren't just a lot of women in the story to start with so right know, if, if they're all kind of victims in this way that really really sucks
1: I don't know that they exist only to be victimized, but I also don't know that they mo- like for the most part, I think you could argue that they mostly
2: just don't exist. Yes, I think that's probably the bigger problem, but
0: we should uh we should look into this book called She that apparently was really inspiring to J.R.R. Tolkien. Um I was reading the Wikipedia about this like recently. It's it's imperialist literature. It, it's about um it's about some people like journeying into the heart of Africa where they like encounter like a mythic society and the mythic society oh. has nothing to do with anybody that actually lives in Africa. It's, it's literally Yikes. just using Africa as a setting. Yeah. Right. But,
1: I'm, but well, I'm, I'm looking at the description on Britannica and it's about two adventurers who search for a supernatural white queen, Aisha, ugh, or she yeah. who must be obeyed, who is the ruler of a lost African
2: city.
0: <laughs> Good. It's almost got too many problems to even be problematic. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but I think that there's like, there's something about the, the, the divine feminine that Tolkien seems to have inherited and tried to replicate
2: mm-hmm. in some
0: of his like, like female character building or
2: not building. But I, I don't even think series. that that's true because like, you know, talking about Eowyn, like she is not represented in that kind of female divinity way. True. 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 Mm-hmm.
1: I would push back on that a little bit just because I'm thinking about sort of when we talk about the divine feminine, I think there are a couple of different archetypes we would have to consider. And when you think about like the warrior maid in the sense of somebody who is devoted to like a higher power, look yeah. at Joan of Arc,
2: That's right? fair, and yeah. sort of
1: this idea of being touched by the
2: divine. Right. And just because it's not the same trope doesn't mean it's not a trope. Mm-hmm. But I also, like, I guess, like, I don't necessarily have a problem with that because it's not like the men escape from being these archetype characters, you know? But you do have to admit that there's,
0: like, very little, like, on Tolkien's part, there's this clear trend of mostly engaging with and and developing female characters as not regular women right like there are female characters but for the most part they sort of exist apart from um that there's they're sort of like outside of gender to the extent that they're um they don't really have a power struggle type relationship with male characters in the book Ao1 kind of being the notable exception right right yeah so like to the extent that like women as like a cat as like a category of people are like partially defined by their like struggle against patriarchy, there's no like there's no there's really almost no battle of the sexes that's even nodded to in this series.
1: Well, and I read something interesting where I saw a post the other day which was basically saying like if you're gonna write a an equal division of characters across genders, then the idea is not to just have women who are extraordinary right either extraordinarily good or extraordinarily evil the idea is that there should be women who are mediocre too right like where are the female equivalents of barlam and butterbur and farmer maggot <laughs> and all of these other characters who we like meet very briefly but who are people
2: and i think the kind of like the easy fix to this is to give us some female hobbits because they are oh, the representation sure. of the the average like the average joe in this world right cuz all of the other members of the fellowship and every other character that we get like whether they're deeply flawed or not like they are not the everyday man either so the hobbits are kind of that representation of like the the normal guy just trying to you know make it out here in this world and i think missing women from that world is what leads to this kind of like where where are they right the hobbits are the most developed characters in the story
0: for a reason right which is that they're sort of like the um they're the like voice or the eye of the audience right right um and so if you if you like if you had some female hobbits in here then you probably couldn't avoid like discussing the the more nuanced relationships between them because the relationships between the hobbits are probably the ones that are the best the best developed here. Yeah, it 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 seems like it seems like it, it's I don't know. I like, I'm not I'm not interested in coming out and being like Jared Tolkien's a sexist or as if that's like anything new or is like anything that we would be surprised by.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, but, product of his time, right?
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. But but I think it is like what what I find interesting, what I like is discussing teasing out the differences between like, okay, is this a sexist portrayal of a woman or is the thing that is sexist or not feminist, the absence of something? Or is it the fact that like, does it have less to do with like Tolkien's female characters than the way that he doesn't engage with the idea of gender? Right. Like.
1: Right. And I think this is one of those open-ended questions. I think the big sort of issues of race and sex and, Gender And sort of all of these things, as we've said, Tolkien is dead and cannot have regrets any longer. And so some of these things we're never going to get answers for, right? Or we maybe are never going to reach a conclusion that feels totally satisfying. But that doesn't mean that we can't sort of periodically dive in, in and around the the truly deep cut of Keanu Reeves' Elrond. <laughs> which we know is the content you're all here for.
0: Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, to Sneha, and to all our listeners for joining us on this journey.